I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, folks. Welcome to Naval Month on the Napoleon Assist, as voted for by my Patreon supporters. I've got a quick favour to ask. If you enjoy the episode, drop a like, subscribe, and how about sharing or leaving a review? It'll take you a few seconds, but it makes a huge difference in helping to reach a wider audience. As ever, if you're interested in going even further to support the podcast, check out the links in the description to discover how you can become a supporter, the perks that are involved, and how you can leave a one-off tip. Thank you all for your incredible support as we close in on 75,000 downloads, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to The Napoleon Assist and yet another instalment of Naval Month. We all know how much you love those great sessions where I bring in a bunch of brilliant minds and make them kind of throw themselves into the, the, the pit, if you will, of historical discussion. This makes it sound very violent. It's not meant to be violent. Usually these end up being full of laughter and um, you kind of all end up agreeing with one another. I've got guests burying their heads in their hands already at the prospect of what's before them. The theme tonight is the most significant naval event. Now that's deliberately left wide open. We haven't gone for most significant naval battle because that would just be predictable. And looking at who's going for what, it seems like we are banning the T word tonight. Nobody has been predictable and gone for good old Trafalgar. So brace yourselves for what, plan- what promises to be a brilliant session. Joining me to dive into all of this are Dr. Jamie Goodall, who folks will remember from the very first installment of Naval Month. Jamie was talking to me about her book, The Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay, and she's the presenter of Uncorked History Podcast. We also have Callum Easton, a newcomer to the Napoleon Assist, who recently completed his PhD. Congratulations, I'm not even slightly jealous. Um, he completed that at Cambridge Uni, looking at the Spithead and Nor mutinies, and he's currently a research fellow at the National Maritime Museum. 
We also have Sam Jolly, another Napoleonicist newcomer, who's assistant curator at the Royal Engineers Museum and has a particular interest in the Napoleonic era and is a trustee of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity. And last but by no means least, we have Andy Young, a former naval schoolie, as he describes himself, uh, and is a naval commentator and a research fellow with the Royal United Services Institute. Welcome all of you to the Napoleonicist. It's great to have some of you back in, in the cases of Jamie and Andy, and have you here in the cases of Callum and Sam. How are you all doing? Doing pretty well. Yeah, doing good. good. This is good. The, the, the consensus <laughs> seems to be, yeah, we're happy. Um, even though some of us are, are suffering slightly from overwork and illness and, and so on and so forth. Let's just jump straight in, shall we? Because we've deliberately kept it broad, you know, most significant naval event, there's there's no rhyme or reason to this. You know the format, you get five minutes and afterwards I will ask you some awkward questions because, hey, I'm just deeply unpleasant like that. Um, they won't actually be deeply unpleasant questions, don't worry. Uh, and then we'll open it up to a wider discussion across the group. Well, let's start with Sam. Okay, hello. So uh, I would like to talk today about the uh, the naval blockades, um, because the, despite the glamour of the period, many ships, uh, particularly in the Channel Fleet, spent most of their time blockading ports. The most important port blockaded was Brest, which was under almost permanent blockade between 1793 and 1815, far the, the year or two of the peace. Um, and in 1805, for example, the Royal Navy had approximately 30,000 men stationed off Brest alone. Blockades had multiple uses. They reduced the trade of both import and export, including important shipbuilding supplies from the Baltic. They affected the morale of French sailors. And the combination of both of these would also affect the French Navy's efficiency at sea and in battle. And the blockade could also prevent invasion of Britain from the Channel. However, the flip side of this is it also affected British morale. The monotony of blockade duty and harsh weather took a hard toll on sailors and men had to be kept busy by more frequent watches and drills. It would be really selfish of me to claim the entire blockade as the most significant naval event, because that would basically be all of the Channel Fleet for all of both wars. So I would like to focus on the opening year of the Napoleonic Wars after Amiens and the Navy's swift implementation of a flexible blockade. In the weeks before the war broke out, the Navy was mobilizing fleets for the blockade before the war had even begun. Heath was given the North Sea Fleet, Cornwallis the Channel Fleet, and Nelson the Mediterranean. Uh, I'm afraid that's the last time I am going to mention Nelson for anyone who is excited about Nelson. Um, Cornwallis moved fast. His fleet's first capture came on the 23rd of May, a lugger taken by the HMS Doris off the coast of France. Napoleon found the legality of this quite dubious, as he doubted the news of the war could have reached Cornwallis quite that fast. The Navy continued in this vein, and in the first month of the war, French, French trade was virtually wiped from the seas. 1,200 enemy merchant ships were captured and millions of pounds in merchandise. This disruption of trade severely affected the French's ability to build or repair ships. Um, by June 1803, Napoleon shipyards at Brest, Toulon, Lorient and Rochefort were all completely blockaded. These shipyards had only been able to sort of partially restock during the peace, and this prevention of further imports undermined French shipbuilding for years, giving Britain an early and crucial advantage. Without these adequate supplies um, to, to repair ships, the dockyards had to use supplies that were just not as durable. 
And this left the French ships more susceptible to damage if they did make it out to sea um, and if they did engage in battles. The blockade also served to try and trap the French fleet. And within three months, the Navy had successfully bottled up the French Navy. 50 British ships of the Lion blockaded 37 equivalent French vessels. And this was much needed news in Britain. Fears of invasion were so high that in August 1803, the Sussex coastal town of Eastbourne, near where I'm from, was virtually deserted. The success of the blockades and this early blow to French naval power really did give a much needed boost to British optimism. Uh, and the, the faith that Britain had in the Navy at the time can probably be seen in the famous John Bull cartoon, like the Peeping into Brest, where a giant John Bull is on a blockade ship announcing to a teeny tiny Napoleon that his fleet is a very, very light snack. However, in the first year of the war, it was actually Keith's North Fleet Squadron that saw the most action, rather than Cornwallis's arrest, as Napoleon was amassing a possible invasion force around Boulogne. Uh, in the autumn of 1803, Keith's North Sea Fleet began to bombard Boulogne and Dieppe with bomb vessels. And the following year, uh, another, in another example, uh, Napoleon ordered his flotilla personally, ordered them um, at Boulogne to set sail and was forced to watch um, on the shore as they fell foul of the Royal Naval Blockade and 400 French sailors found in front of them. During the previous Revolutionary Wars, blockade strategy around Brest had largely depended on who was in command of the Channel Fleet. Close blockade, uh, sailing close to the shore, was better but more costly and more dangerous. Hood in the late 1790s had preferred to remain closer to Torbay, thus safer for the men and cheaper to the country. However, the French fleet had slipped out numerous times. Um, St. Vincent, on the other hand, who took over later, had preferred close inshore blockades where a tighter eye could be kept on the French. Cornwallis had served under St. Vincent during his hard and fast close blockade strategy, and he, he understood the effectiveness of inshore squadrons, but he also understood the cost. So he decided on a good compromising strategy whereby a small inshore squadron of frigates could monitor the French coast closely, but also a small number of men of war could protect those frigates. And the majority of the French fleet then held back as an offshore squadron. He also ensured ships were rotated frequently to ensure maintenance, as this had been a huge criticism in the previous Revolutionary War period. Another key uh, part of Cornwallis's success is uh, victualling. From 1803, smaller ships brought provisions to those on blockade duty, and this saved not only time and money, but it meant ships did not have to break the blockade to resupply. It's, uh, it's rumoured that um, when, uh, when Cornwallis was at sea, Napoleon refused to let any of his ships sail because Cornwallis's blockade of Brest was just so unrelenting. The challenges were certainly not over, uh, after this first year, but blockades would remain tough on the men for entire war. Uh, gales would destroy ships and French would eventually break out of the blockade at Cadiz and, and lead to Trafalgar. However, the swift success of the blockade in the first year of the war, it didn't only just give the Royal Navy a, a crucial early advantage, but it kept the French at an active disadvantage that they couldn't hope to rise from. The Navy had essentially secured the safety of Britain in that first year without even having to fight a battle. Nicely done, Sam. Thanks very much for that. Um, I do have a question that I suspect Jamie may um, want to come in on in just a second, but you mentioned yourself blockades failed on occasion. Mm. Is there therefore a danger of overstating the impact of a blockade if it can go wrong and lead to a situation where a battle like Trafalgar is necessary? Um, does that perhaps undermine your argument? 
So in answer to part one, I don't think that them being able to occasionally break out really means the, the effectiveness, purely because the other side of it is the preventing trade. And as I said, in the first few months of the war, uh, the entire French merchant trade was just completely obliterated, leading to the, the, the lack of, of shipbuilding equipment. So if that's then the main priority, then no. Okay, fair enough. And the other thing that uh, I was going to ask, and this is where I suspect Jamie might want to come in, I wonder about whether or not this kind of thing basically amounts to a kind of piracy in that I'm at war with this nation, therefore I can steal these ships and all the stuff on them, um, and, and it's mine now and there's nothing you can do about it because I'm blockading your fleet, which therefore might mean that Jamie can claim a moral victory because what we're looking at here is a form of piracy. Jamie, what are your thoughts on that? I would say that it's probably more an act of privateering in this context, um, although they're not given like a letter of mark, but they have, by virtue of being in conflict, the authority to take those ships. So, um, yeah, I think that's an interesting way of looking at them. Okay, and let's open it up to the rest of the group. Any other questions? Any other comments? Personally, I find it quite fascinating that somebody has gone for blockade, because if there's one thing that um, that that really demonstrates the the power of a nation, it's the ability to to maintain that blockade. From Sam, from from everything you've said, and from your your research on it, what I'm fascinated by is the morale problem. So where, where did you see the morale problem being for, for the British, for the Royal Navy in maintaining that blockade? Was, was it something that, that came up really uh, prominently in, in, the, in the reading you've done? Mm, it, is, it is regularly brought up by uh, most historians of the period. Uh, it, it's not necessarily in the, so the primary sources quoted, it's not necessarily brought up hugely um, in the things that I read, but it's uh, as soon as as soon as Saint Vincent took over in eighteen hundred, um, he instantly noticed that it might also because Saint Vincent is is very uh, is a bit of a disciplinarian, but he instantly implemented the the greater amount of watches and the greater amount of drills because he was just completely and totally unhappy with the morale and the behaviour that was going on in the fleet that he'd just taken over. And it didn't just extend to the, the common sailor as well. It was definitely the, the officers. Um, every, every morning, St. Vincent would get up ridiculously early and go on his deck and look through his telescope to see which of his officers were on ships. And if they weren't on their deck already, he would, he would discipline them as well. Um, and it was, a huge, it was a huge problem for people like uh, Pelgu. Pelgu, he rose to fame through his fast frigate action. Um, through bounty and prize money and glory and then suddenly he's put on the channels to the channel fleet in uh, sort of 1803 and he doesn't know what to do with himself because he's just sailing up and down and he's he's not really allowed to do anything he's not allowed to charge into Brest and and just take uh, anything he wants he has to he has to you know board the occasional uh, merchant vessel and if it's if it's French they can take it if it's not French they just ask for information on what happened in Brest and sort of a, a little spiring so Pellew himself is is bemoaning the the state uh, of affairs and so it's not it's definitely not a uh, limited to just sailors but it's a huge a huge wide-scale problem. I love that kind of notion that Pellew is struggling with the idea that he can't act like a privateer 
that's that's just fascinating. Um, Callum, have you got anything you want to chip in on this? Uh, yes, thanks. Yeah, and thank you for that, Sam. I, I definitely agree with the, with what you have said and, and with what Andrew has said there in terms of the importance of the blockade and the extreme uh, expression of, of of power in bringing in this blockade, and so not giving your enemy many opportunities to fight you in a way. Uh, and you've spoken about the morale problem that comes with that and the monotony of blockade. But on the flip side of that coin, I wonder, perhaps it's not very interesting for the British public back at home either. There's not much of, of uh, great excitement to read about in the papers uh, compared to perhaps land battles going on at a similar sort of time. Um, so I wonder, do you think the Navy loses out a little bit there um, when things settle down into, into pretty steady blockade work? Yes, I imagine so. I, I haven't done any in-depth study into to newspapers apart from obviously seeing this, this big famous um, John Bull cartoon that, that I referenced, but you don't need to dig very far to find something like that. But I think it, in the first year uh, that I was talking about it, the, the, the press is so wound up about this potential invasion of England that even if the Navy hadn't even fired a bomb vessel anywhere, they would have just been the heroes just for lining up in a row, I think. Because they were, the faith in the Navy was just so high that it was just a case of, they are our front line, they are protecting us. Um, and there weren't any huge battles, as I said, they, to me, they effectively um, reigned supreme from the first year without even having to fight a battle. And so it, it didn't really matter to the public, in, in my opinion, based off of, of uh, <laughs> some of those cartoons, they were still their heroes. Brilliant. Okay, thanks very much for that, Sam. Let's keep the momentum going. Uh, Callum, do you want to? We've been talking a little bit about discipline. Do you want to take the next one? Okay. Yeah. Could do. Thanks. Sir. Yes, I'll, I'll jump in with my pitch. But I think really Sam has done a lot of my job for me there in trying to persuade you, um, because yes, this, this characterization of the navy as the first line of defence, as the heroes, the barrier between Britain and invasion. I think that the whole importance of, of my pitch in favour of the 1797 mutinies at Spithead and the Nore, but that my central interest in, in these events is that that is when that faith in the Navy was shaken, I think, more than any other single occasion. So to, to give you the, the background on this, the spring of 1797 was an absolute terrible nadir of British fortunes in this war, because there, there had been a spring of bad harvests, food prices were high, there were signs of discontent in some parts of the population causing concern. Um, following on from this, just a few months earlier at the end of 1796, the French had very nearly managed to land a large force on the coast of Southern Ireland. They'd only been prevented by the weather and not by some glorious naval action. Uh, and indeed, in February of 1797, they did manage to land a, a small abortive uh, raid at Fishguard in, in Wales, um, which you've probably heard of and, and is, is rather hilarious, but uh, it did have the effect of causing a run on the pound at the Bank of England uh, and caused a lot of extra headaches for the government of the day. On top of all of that, Britain's last continental ally, Austria, is in the process of making peace with the French, leaving Britain completely isolated, and it's in that context that we see the Spithead and Nor mutinies break out. This is when the two fleets responsible for home defense, 
centered on the Channel Fleet at Spithead and uh, the North Sea Fleet that came down from Yarmouth to the Nore. Each went on strike for about a month. Um, it's not really a, a particularly good comparison, but the way I sometimes try and get across the urgency of this to people is to say it's a bit like fighter pilots going on strike in the summer of 1940. It's kind of that urgent, that frightening for people at the time. So to start with the Spithead mutiny, really this is quite a, a decent conciliatory affair. Um, the, mutiny, uh, uh, the mutineers made clear that they would set sail if the French showed their face out of port. Um, and their demands were relatively moderate, just for an increase in pay, which hadn't been uh, increased since the 1650s, so yeah, perhaps they had a point there. Um, and also they demanded increased food and that of better quality. Quite quickly, the authorities recognized the justice of a lot of these claims, and there was uh, a fairly robust process of negotiation took place, after which those key demands for higher pay, more food and better quality were conceded um, and some unpopular officers were uh, moved about, shuffled about a bit to keep everyone sweet and nobody was punished for their participation in the Spithead mutiny. Just before that came to an end, however, a similar mutiny broke out at the Nor. At first it was uh, much along the same lines with similar demands and so the government was quite confident that once the good news from Spithead reached them, everything would settle down again. But that was, was not to be the case. Um, indeed, the Nord demands grew uh, more and more extreme. And having just granted all of these concessions at Spithead, the government was not in any mood to negotiate any further. Um, this itself caused a bit of a vicious cycle where the mutineers at the Nord became more and more desperate until ultimately they ended up blockading the Thames for a, about a week or so. Uh, and of course that didn't do them any favors in the great context, uh, contest for public opinion uh, in this, uh, this mutiny. The government were quite happy just to wait out the mutiny and eventually support collapsed uh, and about 28 or 29 mutineers were executed for their participation in, in that mutiny. So, why am I choosing this event to pitch to you as the most important naval event of this whole period? Well, as I've, as I've alluded to, I, I think more than any other occasion, this was the moment when the British people came closest to falling out of love with the Navy, and uh, where Navy and nation came closest to losing trust and faith in one another. Um, we're familiar with the discomfort of the British people in this period with the standing army, and its use as a, a police force, a potentially uh, a, a, an instrument of oppression. Usually the Navy escapes that sort of comparison by dint of being far away and protecting Britain's freedom and Britain's prosperity through trade. That obviously is all undermined by the mutinies and particularly by the blockade of the Thames. Um, so yes, the mutinies brought all of that relationship into question. Uh, as well as considering the importance of particular brief moments in history. I think historians are increasingly interested in long-term structures and institutions that underlie all of these, uh, these flash-in-the-pan moments. So for example, instead of just looking at the winning strategy in one particular battle, we would also want to consider infrastructure like dockyards, shipyards, training, recruitment, general terms of service, but also the broader relationship between the nation and the Navy. And I would argue that the Spithead and Nor mutinies provide quite an unusual 
opportunity to study all of that uh, in the round. And I would argue that it was the restoration of faith in the Navy um, post uh, mutinies and the, the satisfaction of the settlement of Spithead across the vast majority of the Navy that laid the groundwork for the renewal of that relationship that Sam mentioned of uh, seeing the Navy as the protectors, the saviors, and the first line of defense. Um, without that process of overturning some of the old-fashioned terms of naval service, which were becoming increasingly indefensible, um, I, I don't think that the Navy would necessarily have been as effective in those later years of conflict as it proved to be. Wow. Um, hell of a way to try and persuade the person um, doing the editing uh, that you've won. Um, focus on their love of all things related to discipline. Um, so, so this is going to be a hard one to argue against. Um, I, I've got a couple of questions, actually, first of all, just on, on factual basis. Firstly, mm. the, the pay. How much did you say they were getting paid a day? Um, at the time, it was roughly a, a shilling a day, depending on the skill of the sailor and with compulsory deductions each month, uh, which uh, never came their way. But then there's the whole thorny issue of the regularity of naval pay and discounting of naval pay tickets. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a complex one. But um, certainly with the price rises of the 1790s, their pay was did not go as far as it did in the 1650s. Mm, see, I'm just thinking about the British rank and file who also mm. don't get paid. Normally they get paid a shilling a day. In reality, it's more like six months that they actually see and then they never see that because they're out on campaign. And it's all months in arrears. Mm. So um, <laughs> good job that the army didn't follow suit. Otherwise, this could have been quite a problem. The other thing I'm curious about is the intelligence failure on the French side that they mm. didn't know about this opportunity because... Was it just really well publicized that the, the mutineers had said, look, if the French pitch up, we'll put to sea, but otherwise, you know, we're, we're not doing anything. Was this widely known or did, did it just kind of get dealt with too quickly for them to be able to capitalize on it? Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of it was probably down to some good luck for the British there. Um, yes, I, I think relatively quickly word reached the French of news of the mutineers. Uh, and I, I haven't read anything to suggest they knew that the mutineers were willing to suspend their complaint and go out to fight them if need be. Um, but I, I think the main point here is that actually the main French fleet at Brest was uh, caught at a bad moment. Uh, they, they just weren't ready to go to sea. They didn't have the, the victuals on board. Uh, they had a terrible uh, case of, of desertion over that winter and, and uh, even some disease as well. So fortunately, I think they just weren't in a position to capitalize on it. And I think there's a, there's a brilliant uh, irony that uh, in the first week of the mutiny at Spithead, the uh, French assembly was in discussion complaining about the, uh, the all-powerful nature of the British Navy on the seas. So they, they were slow to recognize the opportunity, but even if they had, um, they weren't really in a position to, to get enough ships to sea to, to really make the most of it, I think. Uh, the, the French uh, general, uh, uh, the sort of Irish emigre French general, Wolf Tone, in the Batavian Republic just up the coast, he did definitely recognize the opportunity that this presented. And he fired off a lot of furious 
letters to Paris and to uh, to uh, Amsterdam, but really got got nowhere uh, with that. And the Dutch fleet wasn't ready for sea until October, um, when they were defeated at Camperdown. See, it's it's my duty to be really awkward now and, and ask a deeply unpleasant question. I've got to say, I'm not finding this particularly easy. Um, so I'm going to ask something slightly broader in terms of longer term impact. So we're, we're talking quite a bit about morale. Morale obviously being something that ebbs and flows. You've also got massive issues of discipline and the way in which discipline is handed out. Fundamentally, when it comes to questions of morale, how much do Spithead and Nor actually change? Because the crackdown shows that the people at the top, if they're in the mood, they'll acquiesce, but push it too far and they will come down on you like a ton of bricks. So does it really change a huge amount in terms of the give and take? Because to me, any kind of suggestion that you might initially want to make in terms of the success at Spithead and you know, agency amongst the, the, um, the, the ordinary sailor kind of gets quashed by what they do at the Nor. Oh, that's, yeah, that is a great needling awkward question you found that, yeah, perfect devil's advocating there. Um, but yeah, I, I think the important point I need to get across here is that the Spithead and Nor mutinies are sort of genie in the bottle moments. And however much repression there is after the Nor mutiny, and I think I would argue that in the grand scheme of things, actually they were relatively conciliatory in how they approached the matter of, of discipline after these mutinies. You can never get back to a situation of, of how it was before uh, the Spithead and Nor mutinies. And certainly when you read some of the letters and testimony and, and even the, the captain's logs, of many of the officers on, on frontline duty here, they can never quite sleep as soundly again. Um, and that means that, well, I always like to think of, of mutiny as a process of negotiation, albeit a, a very um, high stakes and, and uh, sort of dangerous one, potentially. But the, the captains in the wake of these mutinies they have to keep a closer eye on the welfare of their men and uh, on the terms of service and, and on to matters of morale. And so you do see within a few years some quite considerable uh, reforms. And I think it's quite difficult to draw a straight line perhaps to some of these. But by the time you get, for example, to 1806, the very unpopular practice of starting, that is to say, sort of, well, the euphemism would be encouraging sailors with uh, pieces of rope tied into knots, uh, a quick whack of that. That process was uh, abolished, at least on paper, from 1806. We see uh, the pay rise of um, 1797 is actually followed quite quickly by another in 1801. So I think this all goes to show that the government, the admiralty, and individual officers are well, or did recognize the injustice of leaving the terms of naval conditions as they were for such a prolonged period of time. And they have to be a bit more attentive and a bit more flexible in how they interpret and apply the naval law code and, and discipline, uh, disciplinary regime. Okay, thank you for that. Let me stop hogging the limelight and let the others get a word in edgeways. Sam, Andy, Jamie, what, have you, what are your thoughts on this? 
what I'm loving about this. So normally I edit these kind of awkward pauses out, but everybody's looking at everyone else and nobody seems to want to touch this one with a barge pole. Let me start with Andy. Um, I, I quite like this watershed moment in, in naval history because it, it kind of shows just how mercenary um, Matlows actually are. Um, they're willing to put up with a lot of stuff um, but being paid less than a paid less than the army is a no-no. Um, and you talk about structures, colour. What is the abiding structural change that came out of this, which, which has stayed with us ever since, in, in your opinion? I think probably the one that I would point to as being the, the most significant structural change would probably be the allotment system, the naval allotment system. And this is a structure that's generally quite obscure, it's not flashy, it doesn't attract too much attention. But this was the method whereby serving sailors were able to send a portion of their pay to their families at home. Um, this was a perennial complaint uh, across the country that those responsible for welfare, and particularly in port cities like Portsmouth, you see lots of petitions for the government complaining that they have all these wives and children of sailors in their borough and they're having to fork out to pay for them and support them. The allotment system is brought in, uh, ooh, citation needed, but I think off the top of my head, it's about 1795. It's certainly a few years before the mutinies, but uptake is very, very low. Um, if you look though at the allotment registers in the years after the mutinies, there is a huge uptick in the proportion and number of sailors actually willing to send some of their pay to their families. Um, and perhaps some of this is just down to the fact they were being paid a bit more and were <laughs> more willing to, to share some of that with their families. Um, but certainly you see the uptick is, is much greater and the Admiralty is having to hire a lot more clerks in the office just to handle this system. And so I think this is an important link again between the Navy and society. Um, it points to the role that sailors could maintain as family men, as fathers. Um, and I, well, you know better than I the state of things at the moment, but I would hope that is a tradition that has continued uh, and that the Navy uh, and, and the sailors are, are happy and able to, to support their relatives back home. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure how many Matlows do that willingly, um, <laughs> but certainly, yeah, uh, joys of having joint bank accounts these days takes that, takes that pressure off. Thank you. Sam, let me bring you in. Uh, I guess my question for you would be how much you think the changes that came in made an impact compared to just being able to go out and take out a good old ship and get some prize money, which is a favourite part of, as we talked about earlier with Pellew, it is a favourite part of the service for uh, for definitely many of the officers, but the, the men also profited from this as well, so. Oh, absolutely, yeah, I think that's yeah. it's absolutely true that uh, prize money was one of the great consolations of naval service and uh, one of the great motivators to staying with the Navy. Um, in a way that uh, can help to maintain discipline if there is a realistic chance that in a few days time you're going to head out and, and you might make your fortune overnight. Um, I think a problem here again comes back to what you were saying about the blockades. As 
Britain's blockades firmer, there are fewer and fewer opportunities for prize money. It's much more likely you're going to be stuck on these uh, massive men of war trawling up and down the North Sea in all weathers and less likely to be racing off uh, after a prize. The other thing to mention is that by and large, these fleet mutinies were confined much more to, not exclusively, but they were mostly uh, on uh, ships of the line, uh, where again, unless there's a big fleet battle, you're a lot less likely to get prize money on a ship of the line than you are in one of these nifty frigates under Pellew, for example. Um, so early on in, in the Spithead mutiny, they made clear they only want ships of the line. Some frigates try and join the mutiny in sympathy, but the leading mutineers send them off to protect trade, to catch French privateers. Um, so the, the smaller ships are less likely to be involved full stop, I suppose. Um, I'm not sure how rounded an answer that is to your question, but, but that's what springs to mind. And Jamie, let, you, let me bring you in. Um, I got nothing. <laughs> this is a little, a little beyond my expertise, so. Fair enough. I, I think Callum will kind of chalk that up as a, a victory. This, that is a, a very strong contender. That's not to, you know, cast aspersions at, at Sam's suggestion either. We're not discounting anybody yet. Uh, Jamie, I'm going to come straight back to you, actually. Let's, let's go with yours next. Okay, so I'm a little bit of an odd man out, and rather than an event in the Napoleonic era, I chose an event that I think helped to facilitate Britain's successes during that era. So I'm focusing on piracy, um, and in particular, the battle between Bartholomew Black Bart Roberts and uh, Captain Shalana Ogle. Um, so a little bit of background, uh, Black Bart Roberts was born in 1682 and he operated primarily between 1719 and 1722. He was a Welsh pirate and he is known as the most successful Atlantic world golden age pirate just by virtue of the number of ships he captured. Um, according to records, he captured no fewer than 400 ships during his three-year pirate tenure. So while he wasn't the wealthiest, um, he did successfully capture more ships than anybody else. Uh, he gets his start as the second mate on a slave ship, um, which sort of informs how he operates as a pirate. Um, there's one instance where they've seized a ship and it happens to be a slave ship. And rather than freeing the enslaved on board, um, the captain refuses to back down and Roberts insists on setting the ship on fire. And so the enslaved on board either perished as a result of the fire or they drowned uh, trying to escape it. Um, the event in question begins in early February of 1722 when Captain Ogle of the HMS Swallow came upon Roberts and his mini pirate crew careening at Cape Lopez. Um, so the swallow veers away towards a shoal, and the idea was to make the pirates think that she was a fleeing merchant ship, so it would draw the pirates out. Uh, so one of the pirate ships does draw out, but it's not Roberts, and so Ogle is still on the hunt for Roberts. Um, on February 10th, 1722, 
The Swallow returned to Cape Lopez after having captured one of Roberts's pirate ships and found that Roberts was still there. So luck was on Ogle's side, um, especially because on the previous day, Roberts had captured a merchant ship and many of his crew were drunk uh, in celebration of this capture. So they're completely unfit for duty when he needs them the most. So at first, the pirates thought that Ogle's ship was uh, the Ranger returning, the other pirate ship. Um, but a deserter from the Swallow recognized it as the Swallow and informed Roberts. And so they developed this plan, which is to sail past the Swallow, exposing themselves to one broadside, and that once passed, they would have a good chance of escaping. Um, unfortunately, probably because he was still drunk, uh, the helmsman failed to keep the ship on the right course and the Swallow was able to deliver a second broadside. Um, and in this chaos uh, that ensued, Captain Roberts was killed by grape shot, which struck him and tore out his throat. Um, so quite a grisly death for, for Bart, Black Bart Roberts. Um, now Ogle had orders to capture Black Bart's body, but before he could, Robert's wish was to be buried at sea. So his men buried him in, at sea with all of his armaments, uh, including a, a cross necklace he had stolen from the Brazilian uh, treasure ship. Um, without Roberts, the pirates essentially lose heart. They have no fight left in them. And within an hour of the initial uh, shots being fired, they surrendered. And this is 152 pirates who surrendered to Captain Ogle. So Captain Ogle was rewarded with a knighthood. He is the only British naval officer to be honored specifically for his actions against pirates. And he eventually became an admiral as a result of his actions. And this battle really proved to be a turning point in the war against the pirates, um, with many considering Robert's death to mark the official end of the golden age of piracy and opening up the Royal Navy to focus on other matters as opposed to the, you know, the prominent scourge of the seas. So that's my contender. Thank you very much. Um, I'm just going to ask you one question in response to this, and it's tied into what you said right at the end there about this demise of the age of piracy. I must admit, I'm not au fait with dates in terms of pirates. Um, I have a feeling that Blackbeard is around a little bit later. Is that right? Or am I just making a fool of myself? Uh, he's around the same time. I, I think it's 1718 or 1719 when Blackbeard's reign kind of ends, but okay. he operates at the exact same time Roberts is operating. So is it right to say that this marks the end of the golden age of piracy? Because I know that, you know, your book on Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay, which goes on all the way through to the Oyster Wars, you know, the Oyster Wars go on until um, the, the 1950s, even. Yeah. Um, you know, piracy as, as a concept kind of continues. You have the, the Barbary pirates um, operating out of the, the Med. So, so is that uh, an accurate kind of characterization that this is the end? And yes, the Royal Navy does get to focus on other stuff. Yeah, I mean, so this is specifically the end of the golden age of piracy, which begins in 1650, and they mark the end of it at 1722. Um, because after that point, uh, the in 1717, the 
Crown issued a royal proclamation for the suppression of pirates. And part of that proclamation was a pardon, like a full pardon to anybody who was willing to give up the pirating life. Um, and so many pirates took the Crown up on that offer for pardon. Those who didn't were easily captured and hanged and most of their bodies were along the River Thames for years um, as a warning uh, to prevent piracy from kind of picking back up. I'm going to throw this straight open to the rest of the group. Who wants to chip in on this one? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The looks of fear in their eyes. If only this was going out on video. Callum, what are your what are your thoughts here? Thanks very much, Jamie. Uh, that was brilliant. Um, I I want to ask about the dynamic on board the pirate ships and and the in particular the relationships between the crew and the captain. The again, I suppose a sense of discipline here. I know there's there's um, a body of work that talks about a, a hierarchy. Um, existing in terms of social relations on these sorts of vessels and that this was one of its main features was a, a sense of egalitarianism and comparative equality and that this then had very long-lasting impacts on uh, merchant ships and even naval vessels across a whole host of nations so in a way I, I think I'm kind of giving you ammunition here to support your claim but yeah I, I wonder if I could ask you to comment on that a little bit further please that aspect of life for the pirates. Yeah, sure. So there are plenty of pirate ships who operated um, as a seaborne democracy, essentially, where they share equal loot, they uh, share equal votes. Uh, those votes are on who will be captain, and that person remains captain in name only. They don't get any more shares or anything more important than the rest of the crew. They are there as captain to guide during conflict. Um, so there are plenty of examples of that. And Black Bart Roberts is kind of an example of that. Uh, he, so his ship, the, the slave ship that he started on was captured by pirates and he was forced into service um, by the pirate uh, Howell and, uh, or Hal Davis. And Davis was killed just six weeks after uh, forcing Roberts to join his crew. And it turns out that Roberts was quite a skilled navigator. So the men on board voted to make him captain. Um, so he was one of the early adopters of a pirate code, uh, which you can find online. You have to kind of take it with a grain of salt because it comes from Captain Charles Johnson's A General History of the Pirates. But um, 
he he lays out sort of an, an equality system uh, for the crew members. And so, um, for example, when they seized the Sagrada Familia, which contained 40,000 to 90,000 moidoras, which is gold Portuguese currency, um, that was shared equally among all of them, and he didn't get any more than the rest of the crew. So, um, and then discipline was a big part of that. Uh, if So the men who got drunk <laughs> when they weren't supposed to, um, typically they would have been punished for uh, relinquishing their duties, uh, so to speak. So hopefully that answers your question. Sam, what about you? Hello, uh, thank you, Jamie. I'm always very happy to listen about pirates. That was really good. My, my question rests on your argument that um, by ending the age of piracy, therefore the seas were relatively free for, for British naval supremacy. Was there not then actually just a problem with a different kind of piracy and privateering? Did that not then just fill that void? So the... They shift focus to the Indian Ocean, but that piracy is not nearly as prolific as the Atlantic world had been. And because at this point, uh, the majority of their colonies are still in the Atlantic world, they haven't formally colonized enough of the uh, Indian subcontinent and, and Asia. Uh, I think that that Atlantic world aspect was really important. Um, just because it was so much more prolific. And uh, in my book, Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay, like they're constantly asking the crown to send them more men of war because the pirates are, you know, destroying the shipping lanes. And so they're not able to get the tobacco out. They're not able to bring the English goods in. And uh, so the Royal Navy is frequently tasked with uh, suppressing piracy when they have other things that they need to be focused on. So. And Andy, what about you? Um, yeah, I'm, I think the one thing that I'd like to know is what's going on in what were the, the safe havens? Because when, if, as a pirate, you need somewhere to offload your goods. So what, what was going on in the safe havens at the same time as the Royal Navy was, was, was playing uh, elephants chasing ants, as we describe it in, in off, off Somalia? What, what was going on in the safe havens at, at the same time? Um, so, well, by this point, by 1722, there aren't very many safe havens left. Um, the Bahamas is just one, um, Tortuga being another, but uh, many of the colonies that the uh, pirates relied on uh, no longer serviced the pirates. They no longer uh, fenced their loot for them. The governors were cracking down on pirates living within their colonies. And so, um, by that point, there's just there's not many places for them to go, which is why they shift um, towards the Indian Ocean and Madagascar as a safe haven. Um, but even then, by that point, so many of the Atlantic world pirates had been captured and either pardoned or hanged. Um, there weren't that many shifting over. Wow. Thank you. Another great pitch, um, which brings us on last but by no means least, to Andy. What are you going for? How are you going to top all of these? Um, so similarly, I'm going outside the Napoleonic era and I'm actually not going for a single event. Um, I'm going for something 
which was more of an era in and of itself. Um, I'm going to talk about Anson, um, a man who arguably built the Navy that Earl St. Vincent um, and, and obviously his, his protégé uh, Nelson used to massive effect. Um, because in the Navy, we talk about something as there's normal time and there's Navy time. And to build a fleet, you actually need about 50, 60 years. If you just look at the modern ships, HMS Queen Elizabeth, she started way back in the 90s, really, in concept. And she's going to be serving until the 2030s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whenever it is that, that we finally get rid. So Navy time is much, much more extended. Um, but George Anson was a towering figure in naval history who most of us have actually forgotten. Um, come, first comes to prominence in 1744 when he is the first Englishman to circumnavigate or captain a ship circumnavigating the globe since uh, Sir Francis Drake, captures the Acapulco uh, treasure galleon in in in, in um, comes back to England um, and is raised to the peerage, embarks in politics, joins the uh, Admiralty Board, um, and then spends about 18 years completely reforming the Royal Navy. And when I say completely reforming, I mean completely reforming. Um, he, he becomes first sea lord in 1751. He reforms the Navy board. He creates a meritocracy amongst the effective civil servants who sit in Somerset House, gets rid of the dead wood, brings in the new, uh, the, the new ideas, which includes a certain uh, ship art architect called Slade who he met uh, when he was on the Channel Fleet. Um, and he gifts to Slade some captured French 74, so third-rate ship of the lines, um, and says, what do you make of these? Slade goes, they're good, but they could be better. And he marries French ship design with British building methods. And he creates a, a style of ship, which is the backbone of the Royal Navy for the next 50, 60 years. And, and the greatest example of that still around today is, of course, HMS Victory. Um, so he's doing all of this, and it, it's a constant thing. He, he introduces uniform for officers for the first time. He reforms pay and retention for the sailors. Um, so he gives them that, that step up, and he actually makes the Navy something that people want to serve in in time of war. Um, which means he's able to expand, for example, at the start of the Seven Years' War, from a 10,000 Matlow Navy to 70,000 and the first 30,000 he does without using the press gang um, which is quite significant um, so he's doing all of that he also formally codifies the Royal Navy's court martial proceedings um, which I know Zach you, you'll love to know about um, and this applies to the officers as well as the men and the greatest, greatest example of this coming out is 1750, uh, 1755, when Admiral Bing is executed on his own quarter deck for failing to do his utmost to engage the enemy. Um, and if you want, if you want to know what a really bad day in the office looks like, it's being told to order your own execution. Um, that that's a really bad day in the office. Um, and who are the people who execute him? Those are the Marines who, for the first time in their history, are put on a standing footing, so they will exist in peacetime, and they're put under the Navy. And that happens in 1755. So any Royal Marine who tells you 1664 is the birthday of the Corps is dreaming. 
1755, orders in council. That's when the Royal Marines were formed. Before that, they were army. And anyway, you can become a rifleman and have a Royal Marine in your blood. Um, I'm going to get killed for that one. Um, but it's not, it's not just these structures and reform to people or the architecture. Anson actually kind of changes what it means to be a naval officer. Previously, naval officers were gentlemen who went to sea, who learnt the art of being an officer at sea, which included um, the, the normal seamanship evolutions and a bit of gunnery. Anson changes that. And he says, no, if you're going to be a seaman officer, you need to know navigation and hydrography. Now, navigators and hydrographers, those people were warrant officers. They did not hold commissions. Anson changes that. Every officer is to be a navigator. Every officer is to be a hydrographer. Um, because that whole thing about in, inshore blockade, to be able to do that, you need to have decent charts and you need to know where the, where the chart ends and the map begins, which means actually being able to draw the coastline. Um, and it's because of those innovations that the Royal Navy is then able to, to, to actually start mapping the world far more effectively. And it's why you get people like Cook and Bly. Cook is a navigator and he's promoted into, into the officer class and the same with Bly. Um, so he's doing that. He's also changing TTP, so the tactics, the techniques and the procedures for battle at sea. He recognises that um, it's too linear, it's, uh, it's, it's too rigid. You need, you need initiative, fluidity in battle. And that means relaxing the rules, relaxing the regulations and letting people actually get on with the job in hand. And he marries that with saying, forget this long range bombardment stuff, get in close see the whites of their eyes and withhold your fire until you're at pistol shot. Um, so that's 25 meters. So if you think you're gonna close to 25 meters of the enemy and then release, then open fire, that's a significant difference. Every shot is gonna count, every shot. Um, but if we go back to, the, to, to Sam's point earlier about blockade, it's because of Anson that those blockades are actually able to happen. And that's because of one fundamental difference. He introduces replenishment at sea. This is the idea that you take ship victuals and stores from land and you transfer them to ships at sea. And the real power of this is that in 1759, uh, Hawke on, uh, on the Brest station is able to maintain 14,000 men at sea of whom only 20 are ill. Put that in context, you would not find that in any other spot of the world. 14,000 men, only 20 ill. And that's because he's introduced um, better victuals, he's taken on board uh, Lynn's treatise on scurvy, and he's decided that actually maintaining the health of your people is more important than anything else. So when you look at Anson and this period that he, he, he really ruled the Navy from, from sort of 1744 when he first enters uh, the topmost echelons through to his death in 1762. He's this towering figure. He gives the Navy a perspective, a vision of what success, what good looks like. He reforms all their structures um, and makes sure that they're on a, on a decent footing for when they do go to war in 1755. And then fundamentally, he changes the daily lived experience for the people. It's no longer, as Johnson uh, famously said, 
uh, all the comf comforts of prison with the added benefit of the, the danger of drowning, um, he changes that, that dialogue and that, that, that dynamic within the fleet. Um, so if you want to understand why the Royal Navy became the behemoth it did, you've got to go back to 1751 to when Anson becomes first sea lord a few years previous to that, and then watch how he took the Navy into the modern era, um, which really culminated in 1805. Wow. And that, folks, is how you do Naval Monk from the Napoleonicist. Um, that, that's a mic drop moment. That's possibly the best mic drop moment we've had in however many episodes this thing has been running. That was an incredible um, kind of tour de force on that. Thank you so much, Andy. This is incredible we, we we've just had a little mini break um partly for technical reasons and partly because we're all desperately trying to think of how do we ask awkward questions to bring down this one um jamie's dogs have come and um demanded attention um i don't know whether the, the licks were kind of in commiseration or <laughs> in support or, or just because they're dogs and they they want attention um i the only thing that really springs to mind here is what you were saying about tactics and the effect of that change. So it's it's easy to draw a straight line from what you were just talking about to Nelson, right? But there's something that happens in the middle, which is quite obviously a lot of naval conflict. And if you like, Nelson's sort of an outcome. And you know, you're talking about Navy time, Nelson is the the, the climax of that. But in between, you've got the glorious first of June, which is much more of that doctrine of you line up and you blast away at each other. And some people decide to do something a little bit different and sure that's the plan, but then it all goes a bit wrong. So how much of an impact does that change really have in, in the intervening time between when it's implemented and when the French Revolutionary Wars in particular get going? So that's a good, really good point because it's it's very easy to to, as you say, draw that line. And one of the things you've got to remember is that Anson picked out his commanders, so he picked out um, Boscowan, he picked out Hawk, um, because they're at the top of the tree anyway. And, and I choose them very purposely because 1759, the year of victories, uh, Boscowan goes, chases a French fleet that's uh, left the Mediterranean, um, and he runs half of it ashore um, in uh, Portuguese waters, the Battle of Lagos. Um, and then uh, Hawk chases down another French fleet because he's had to come off station because of a storm into Quiberon Bay. Um, and if you really want to understand the impact of that, that go-at-em, devil-may-care attitude, it's Hawke's words to his, his uh, seamanship officer um, as they go into Quiberon Bay. And the seamanship officer is saying, look, we don't have accurate charts, the, the gale is blowing, and we're already seeing French ships go aground. And, <laughs> And Hawke responds with, you have done your duty in telling me the dangers. Now do yours and lay me alongside the French flagship. Um, and, it, and, it, and, and he says, at pistol shot. So it is a very clear sort of intent there. And the fact that he's going general chase rather than line astern. But between, the, between 1763 and the end of the Seven Years' War and um, 1795, or really, and, and 
the or, or the 1790s and the start of the French Revolutionary Wars, you've got this blip called the American War of Independence, um, where the Royal Navy has got lax and its personnel have got lax. Um, its structures, personnel, everything has, has kind of withered on the vine a bit. And so you have to go through this rebuilding process. Now, what helps with that rebuilding process are two things. One, John Jarvis, Earl St. Vincent, who joins the Royal Navy at the same time as Wolfe joins the British Army. And Wolfe and Jarvis are friends. They know each other from school in Greenwich. Um, and so you have this, this parallel that goes up through, through um, in the Seven Years' War where they're being brought on. Um, and Jarvis then starts learning from people like Hood and Howe, who again were brought up in the brought on in the Seven Years' War. And he passes that on to his protégés, one of whom happens to be Nelson. And from Nelson, you can then trace the next set of protégés, people like Parker, who then take you on down to um, Jackie Fisher. Um, so there is this, this, this very faint line that you can trace through in terms of the spirit and the osmosis of what was meant. But the Seven, the seven Years' War is succeeded by a blip in the American War of Independence, where you've got, for example, the, the Battle of the Chesapeake, where the Royal Navy fails to do what it should have done and support the land army and batter its way through the French fleet. But the reason that happens is because it, it because of peacetime stagnation. And that's a massive shock to the Navy because it's just come out of the Seven Years' War, massive laurels, everybody's got a bit, a bit fat and happy, for want of a better phrase. Um, and they have to go through a very careful rebuilding process. But the fact that they are able to recapture the earlier spirit of Anson, and, and bear in mind, people like Nelson actually understood that. He understood what his duty was and that he stood on the shoulders of giants. And there's a reason why he talks to Benjamin West and says, I want to be your next portrait, which means I have to die in the, in, in the making of it. Um, and there's a reason why he apes uh, Wolf's famous signal about um, everybody knows what, what your duty is. Um, there is this feeling that they let themselves down and that they have to be better. And I think you can trace that through their, their, their letters, through, through, through the documentation of the time. Wow. I mean, <laughs> the nods that are going on around the room, everyone just kind of says you're going, hmm, yeah, yeah, that. Jamie, let me bring you in because of, of the folks who were nodding, I was noticing you nodding really quite a lot there. Um, yeah, I just, I find Anson very interesting and especially because he's operating as a junior officer around the time of the kind of decline of piracy. And I'm wondering if he had any experiences uh, during the War of Spanish Secession or the uh, War of the Quadruple Alliance, uh, if he had any engagements with what would have been privateers, I suppose, but uh, with pirates still operating uh, during that time period. Because I know at one point he uh, is on the HMS Scarborough and he is there to escort British merchant convoys from the Carolinas. And I wonder if that has anything to do with this 
the height of piracy kind of declining? So my my understanding of, of Anson um, is he's actually, he, he comes into the Royal Navy right at the end of the um, War of Spanish uh, succession in, in, in about 1712. And he's a 15-year-old boy. He's, he's effectively a volunteer. But he very quickly gets taken under um, the, the the wings of uh, uh, Admiral, um, I think it's George Bing. So so the the latter Admiral Bing's uh, 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 father, um, and he does operate out there. He's he's aware of piracy. He's aware of the damage that these individuals can do to the merchant merchant marine. And he's, but what he's more important, more aware of is the fact that the merchant marine is the backbone of the Royal Naval service. You don't have a Navy unless you have a merchant marine. He understands this. It's why in the, in the sort of pseudo war, the phony war that, that begins the seven years war, he's, he tells his officers to go out and snap up, French merchantmen, French fishermen, deprive the, the French Navy of the backbone of their fleet. So I think he he also, from the impression I get, almost admires the free spirit of the, the, the pirates' approach to warfare, which is getting close, do, do your utmost, and terrify your opponent. If your opponent believes that he's half beaten before you even get there, it's a much easier battle. So it's almost like that psychological warfare, as we would term it these days, which, which comes through. My understanding of his early service, he was watching on. Um, and he doesn't command until quite late in this period and really after Black Bart. Um, so he's aware of it. I'm not sure whether he was he had any, any direct impact on it. Sam, you're up next. Any thoughts on this? I, I have no questions because as soon as as soon as you said that uh, Anson built the navy that Saint Vincent used, you had me, and then he just kept kept going. So I uh, know I applaud you. I completely agree with you. It's not me. It's uh, it's uh, Andrew Lambert, it's Professor Lambert. I just parrot. Take the credit, Andy. Seriously, take it. You know we're 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 heaping it on you. Just just lap it up, Callum. What about you? Any thoughts on this? Yeah, I found that hugely compelling, Andrew. And, and whenever you're presenting these uh, long-term administrative and, and institutional factors, you're, you're always going to, to win me over. That's music to my ears. Um, I think the one, uh, again, somewhat devil's advocate sort of question to, to throw at you would be that, of course, while Anson is, is operating in, in, this, uh, in this context, there are a lot of other important changes going on um, in terms of the increasing sophistication of government bureaucracy and uh, uh, raising money, and uh, we, we can start talking about the fiscal military or fiscal naval state in this period, um, as well as technological changes, technical changes. So I, I just, it, it doesn't in the slightest um, detract from your argument, but could I ask you to, to draw a few distinctions, please, of, of where you think we can point to, to these wider changes, what was pure Anson, um, what might have been missed if someone else had taken this place, do you think? One of the, one of the difficulties you have when you're studying Anson is um, he didn't like writing things down. Um, so when you're tracing these lines, you're there going, well, why weren't people thinking about this beforehand? And they're all of a sudden thinking about it now. Um, 
and and you kind of have to infer that it's answered but then when you actually do read his letters it becomes quite clear that he is the one thinking about this um but you're absolutely right he exists at a period of point in time where the georgian state is really just starting to get into its stride um I mean, and, and it starts with the with the with the glorious revolution and the the founding of the Bank of England, and it goes on. And, and okay, that's pre-Georgian, but but this is this is where it goes on from. So you need that secure foundation to start. I think the major difference is, and where you can really pinpoint answer, is he starts getting the Admiralty and the Navy Board to work together. And by doing that, instead of having these these two these 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 two institutions, one the civil service that that runs the ship of state that is the the, the navy, and one the operational headquarters, the admiralty and the, the or the navy board and the admiralty respectively, instead of getting them almost operating in in separate silos, he brings them together and goes, you know what, the system works better if we're together, and then he looks at the technology. And, and what's going on at the time and goes, well, hang on, how, how can we how can we mass produce spares? How can we create a, a uniformed method of supplying our ships? Um, and so it's by doing that that you actually start to build this bear moth of a navy that when he does take it to war finally in 1755, after um, reforming it for, for almost a decade, it's it's something that the world has never seen before because it's a professional military fighting force backed up by a professional logistical chain um and that really is the key difference and it and it's down to that that force of personality and willingness to 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 slay sacred cows um amongst the political the the, the political wranglings that happen in westminster and somerset house um which really marks him out. And I don't think you see that again, really, until you get Jackie Fisher and Winston Churchill. I think that's the next time you really see it, um, because the, the, that's the next big reform of the Royal Navy. Um, and, and arguably, we're still waiting for a successor to that. Um, but I won't go there. No, well, that, I mean, there's a whole podcast series, never, like, never mind a whole podcast episode to be, to be had right there, isn't there? Uh, Andy, thank you ever so much for that. Um, wow, what, what a tour de force to end on. Folks, thank you all, because for all that I've heaped praise on Andy for that last one, this is, it's still a tough one. I'm sitting here kind of ratching up kind of who's won points on various things. I don't even know who's won this one. Um, we'll leave it to the forum of, you know, refined and respectful discussion that is Twitter um to to finish off on this one and, and see what twitter makes of, of this but in order for folks to do that i do want them to know where they can find out more about you and your work so rather than me sit here and read off your twitter handles i want to come to each of you where can they find out more about what you are doing follow you on twitter uh, and so on uh, callum shall we start with you uh yes could do yes you can find me on, on twitter callum easton um i think i still have a page up uh, the University of Cambridge with my various interests and work on it, but that will probably disappear at some point. Uh, but hopefully I might get one of the Maritime Museum quite shortly. Um, yeah, <laughs> that would be for now. Jamie? Okay, so you can find me on Twitter. It's at La Historian, which is L underscore H-I-S-T-O-R-I-E-N-N-E. -N -N -E. 
Um, and I have a website, jamiegoodall.com, which has all my upcoming talks and book promotions and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the best places to find me. Andy? Um, so you, you can either get hold of me on the RUCI website. So um, that's RUCI.org. Um, and then under military sciences, Andrew Young. Um, or uh, strategy at strategy for war one on Twitter. It was supposed to be at strategy forward, but that was taken. So um, that one. And then some of my stuff is on uh, academia.edu. Brilliant. And last but by no means least, Sam. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at uh, S underscore Jolly and Jolly is spelled J-O-L-L-E-Y. Uh, and for any Royal Engineers inquiries, you can find me at the Royal Engineers Museum, which is www.re-museum.co.uk. Yeah, don't go start spamming the Royal Engineers with naval inquiries. That's, that's not a good thing. You'll get given a short shrift there. Folks, thank you all so much for your time. This has been an absolutely brilliant discussion and I'm like I say, I'm going to leave it to Twitter to try and work out the winner. Folks, before you go, I've got a quick favour to ask. Smash the like button. Well, don't smash it because that will break your phone, but hit the like button. And if you enjoyed the podcast, why not leave a review, subscribe and stay in touch so that you can be informed when more episodes go out. I want to take a sec to thank those of you who are already doing that. It's making a massive difference. Naval Month has gone down an absolute storm with you guys. The analytics are honestly off the charts. It's unlike anything I've seen on this podcast before. And thank you all so much for making that happen because it's these kinds of things that you're doing by helping to spread the word, by subscribing, by sharing, by telling friends that are making sure that this podcast reaches more people's ears and has more of an impact, which ultimately is why I'm doing this. As ever, I want to take a moment to thank my Patreon supporters whose funds are being poured back into and being reinvested into the show to enable me to grow the content. Particular thanks therefore go to my Emperor-level patrons Mark Stoos and JC Kaiser, my Commander patrons Ger Brown, Jane Davis, Marcus Cribb, Matt Bone, Bob Burnham, Stephen Gillen and Zach Golby. And of course my mentioned in Dispatches patrons Alexandra Lyon, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, an anonymous Canadian, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Indiana Fats, James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, John Haynes, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, and Stephen Colson. As ever, if you want to know about the different perks that come with being a supporter, if you're interested in becoming a supporter, you can find details about that on my Patreon page. The details are all in the description. Just follow the link and you'll uh, have all the information you need. And if being a regular supporter isn't for you, totally understand that. But you do feel like leaving a one-off tip. Take a little look at the Ko-fi link where you can tip whatever you feel a particular episode is worth. As I say, all the money just gets poured straight back in. So you are investing in the future of the podcast and please know that whatever support you are offering, whether it's digital in the form of the likes and the subscriptions and the shares, or whether it's financial, or whether it's simple word of mouth, thank you ever so much. There is one more episode of Naval Month incoming, which will happen towards the end of this week. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always... 
Thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.